Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz saxophonist Jerry Vivino. His latest 2018 CD, Coast to Coast, with Bucky Pizzarelli and others, is a wonderful album. He was born in Patterson, New Jersey, where music and art was an everyday thing in the Vivino household during his childhood. By the age of 16, he started playing saxophone. His life picked up steam. Jerry toured with Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons from 1978 to 79. And all roads led to 1993 when his friend and Bruce Springsteen drummer Max Weinberg asked him if he would like to be a part of a band that he put together to audition for a late-night talk show known as Late Night with Conan O'Brien. That led to 25 years of full action. And now the basic cable band is no longer in the Conan world, so he is moving on into new ventures. We spoke to him about this, that, and so much of the other. So please get to know Jerry and dig this interview, my friends. Jerry, thank you for taking a minute for Neon Jazz, man. It's an honor. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, man, my pleasure. So before we get into your life, and your life in music, which has been a very interesting ride. I want to talk about your latest album, Coast to Coast. It's a great album. It's uh, it, it, it stuck on my phone. I can't stop listening to it. Talk to me about the construction of this album. It was actually a work in progress uh, over time. Uh, the uh, legendary guitarist, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli, grew up with my father as kids, um, basically, and had a health issue. And the word got out that Bucky was uh, not doing well. He was in the hospital. He had a um, mild stroke, I would say. But when you're 90 years old or 91 years old, you know, the word mild, I think, is becomes critical. You know, I, I had been friends with uh, with Bucky and the family, uh, John and Martin, as uh, growing up as a kid uh, through my pop. Uh, my dad would take me to concerts in Patterson, New Jersey, you know, local band shell concerts, and I was eight, nine, ten years old, and my dad would uh, just talk about, you got to hear this friend of mine, guitarist, we grew up as kids, all he did was practice. So Bucky was basically at my uh, my father's preaching uh, uh, about him from when I was small, and when I took up the clarinet at ten years old, he would parallel my practice schedule to what Bucky would do at 10 years old. Dad would say, hey, did you practice today? And I'd say, yeah. And he'd say, how much did you practice? And I'd say a half an hour. And he said, well, Bucky would practice an hour. You know, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek way that he tried to inspire me. But it got to the point where I was like, who is this guy? Why do I have to be compared to Bucky Pizzarelli? You know, I want to go outside and play with my friends but it, you know it was all all good and and basically i met bucky and i my ears as a young kid told me wow this is a special musician and as the years went on um i grew as a musician studying and studying and practicing and i eventually started doing a few gigs in my 20s with bucky and with people uh you know i'm i'm 30 years his his junior so when I was in my 20s, he was in his 50s, and basically um, I started actually doing little gigs, nothing on the high end, like fashion shows and, and pit gigs, and but it was a situation for me that I thought, wow, this is great, and uh, I'm playing with someone that I heard about my whole life, and I know who he is, and um, maybe I'm going to, going to arrive as a musician. So anyway, uh, to get off that, 
you know, I I went my own way, and when Bucky got ill, I happened to uh, call uh, the Pizzarelli house, and they said they would keep me posted. Martin, the bassist from the uh, Pizzarelli family, I had him on the phone uh, about a year after Bucky was out of the hospital and doing well, and I happened to call him for a gig, and I just said, hey, how's your pop doing? And he goes, Jerry's right here, and he wants to talk to you. So basically what that conversation uh, became was, hey, Bucky, how are you? How are you feeling? I hear you're playing again. And he quickly just said, well, when are we going to play again? And I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, no, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd love to record a few tracks with you. My dad had passed away about four years prior to this conversation. And I said, it would, I think my dad would be shining down on, on me and, um, and you and, and would make him proud. And he goes, you tell me when and where and, uh, and we'll do it. So, you know, I got on with Martin and I said, your dad wants to record a few tracks with me. Let's set it up. And he goes, Jerry, let's set it up. So basically, I just thought I would do a few tracks with, with Bucky and keep it in my personal archives. And uh, I asked Bucky what he wanted to play, and he selected, which are on this coast-to-coast record, he selected uh, um, Body and Soul and Honeysuckle Rose. And I said, that's great. That's two cover tunes. I have an original that I never named that I really thought would be suited uh, well for you uh, to play on with me. And he said, okay, bring it along. So... You know, we did that track as well, and that's an original track that I titled Patterson, which is uh, Patterson, New Jersey, where my dad and Bucky grew up. And um, the Pizzarelli family and the Bavinos actually grew up about two blocks from each other when my pop was a kid. We're talking 1930s, you know. When I when I finished those tracks, this, at the time, 91-year-old legendary guitarist, uh, I listened back and I was just like blown away by his musicianship and uh, what what he brought to the table and what came out of those sessions was catalytic to me saying, I think I need to do more recording. Not necessarily with Bucky. Uh, as I listened to those tracks, the rough tracks on my flight back, I recorded those in New Jersey where close, Bucky picked a studio um, uh, in New Jersey close to his home. And I recorded those tracks at the, uh, and listened back on the plane, and I said, wow, why don't I do some tracks in L.A.? So basically, it, 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 that whole conversation with Bucky, you know, just grew into this record. And I did half of it in L.A. and half of it uh, in um, in uh, New York, New Jersey, East Coast, West Coast, Coast to Coast. So there you go. Right on. So, you know, speaking about your childhood, it almost seemed like you were destined for music. You grew up in a very artistically driven house, uh, listening to a lot of jazz when you were growing up. Was it kind of destined that you were going to become a musician? You know, my my father was a really, I mean, a very good trumpet player, not just a good trumpet player. He was in, uh, drafted into the Army um, during World War II, the end of World War II. You know, he basically was in an army band. He was in a in a, a an army. You know, he 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 was the guy who got up and played taps and revelry, and you know, basically uh, was on uh, did his six weeks training, and then basically was swinging with the cats in the army band. It kept him here, 
believe it or not, he was stationed in, uh, in Washington, D.C. in the Army Band. So, you know, I hate to say it, but he was bulletproof, so to speak. You know, all hands on deck, yeah, if we invaded Japan, but we didn't. So when he came out of the Army at 20 years old, he was discharged. He said to his father, uh, and he had popped by, I want to I pursue music. Is that okay? His father had a construction business, and they came over from Italy. My father was born in Calabria, Italy, and um, as a small child, came over with his family, and uh, his father uh, started a construction company and let, lived the American dream. And um, they told my dad, he and his older brother, like hell you're going to be a musician. You're going to swing a hammer. We need you here. And, you know, back in that day, uh, I mean, he could have run away and eloped with his trumpet, so to speak. But, you know, thank God he didn't, because if he did that, I don't think I'd be talking to you right now. The route you take is uh, is basically the journey you take creates the life you live. And I believe that. And, you know, here we are talking. My dad would never have met my mom. But he put the trumpet down in a sad way because he thought, I'm not going to play part time. I want to. I want to play. And but he played in my house my whole life. You know, I met musicians uh, as I grew. At, at, from age 18, 19, 20, I was doing club dates uh, with people that knew my dad, and they said, "Gee, we try to get your your old man to come out and play, but he won't." And I said, "Well, he plays at home all the time. He put on Louis Armstrong records and." you know, Pete Fountain and all kinds of New Orleans swing and jazz and Duke Ellington, and he'd be sitting on the couch playing along. And uh, his heart was really in the music, and myself and my brothers, uh, he gave us music lessons at 9, 10 years old, and he told us, live your dream, because he wasn't, I, I can't say he wasn't allowed to live his dream. It went against, uh, he was a good boy, he listened to his parents, so to speak, and um you know, he had a good life, and, uh, uh, you know, he was an excellent carpenter, and there you go. But he really never stopped playing. You know, later in life, when he retired from, from working his construction business with his brother and the family business, um, he decided at uh, 65 years old, when he retired, he was in a good place, and he was in five different groups. He was in a Dixieland group, a symphonic orchestra, all with retirees. And he died happy playing music. So in a way, he found it again, you know. And my brothers and I embraced that and would support him. And uh, so there you go. That's the story of that era, would you say? Right on. Yeah, totally. So the one thing about you is that you were really swayed. Obviously, you heard so many people growing up and with your father's prowess on the instrument and what he played for you. But Stan Getz really got you going. What was it about Stan that really parted the curtains for you? I started on the clarinet at 10 years old. And my father said to me, I said, Dad, I don't want to play the clarinet. I want to play the saxophone. And my father knew enough about being in the Army Band and, you know, from, from, they, from his high school days all the way through the military, he met so many uh, musicians, and he knew how a doubler, meaning a woodwind player, the clarinet was the instrument. If you could master the clarinet, not or get pretty good on it, the saxophone would be much easier to play. And he said, five years of clarinet, son, and if you um, 
if you're doing well with it, we'll talk about the saxophone when you're 15. <clears throat> so that happened. Uh, my teacher um, was named Ray Gerard. Uh, he started me on the saxophone. So I had five years of clarinet, and I was doing really well with the clarinet. And sure enough, because of that training, I picked up the saxophone, and bang, everything was pretty much there for me uh, technically, finger-wise. Um, but I just had to get my embouchure together. So that started, uh, that moved along, and my father um, said to me, hey, uh, you have to start listening to uh, saxophone players because, you know, it'll help you uh, help your development. I decided, uh, well, my father bought me a Boots Randolph record, and um, he said, these are melodies, you should learn to play them. You know, Boots was, that record had yankety sax on it, but it had the shadow of your smile it had um, uh, Apple Blossom, Cherry Pink. It had tunes that were top tunes of that time when that record was released in the 60s. And um, uh, it was a hit record that came out probably in 1962. And I started the saxophone in 1968, uh, uh, 69 rather, in January of 69. You know, I, I learned those melodies. And I, then I started putting jazz radio on and I listened to John Coltrane. And I was blown away, of course, and I couldn't, and I bought a few John Coltrane records. And I told my sax teacher, Ray Gerard, you know, I can't believe this, this musician, John Coltrane, you know, I'm listening to the Giant Steps. And he just said to me, he goes, listen, Jerry, keep these records, listen to these records. And I said, I can't play along with them. I said, I can't even come close. And it was very frustrating to me, inspiring and frustrating. He said, I think you should start listening to this guy. And I said, who? And he introduced me to Stan Getz. He said, listen to Girl from Ipanema, listen to Desafinado. He goes, this is a master saxophonist, but you can play these melodies. And it developed my ears, and I loved his sound. And that's really how I was introduced to Stan Getz, through a teacher of mine, private instructor named Ray Gerard. So I think that's enough about not bad, let's move on. I respect so many great saxophonists, but Stan was very influential to me. So was Charlie Parker, too, Kansas City guy. Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, Charlie was the guy, yeah. So the thing about you is, is that, you know, when you decided to go to the Manhattan School and you started going, it's just been a constant whirlwind with you. And in the early goes, in 78, 79, you were with Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. That had to be a huge learning experience early on in life. That was my first... I'm basically 23 years old, you know, um, when I when I jumped on that band. Um, that band, um, those musicians, it was a connection. It wasn't about me me actually um, getting the gig because there was an audition posted, although I did have to audition, and I can get into that later. Um, I was in a big band called the Johnny Bellow Joey Cast Big Band from when I was 19 years old, and it performed in Garfield, New Jersey at a lounge called the Down Under Lounge every Monday night. And <clears throat> John Bellow, uh, the late, great John Bellow, a trumpet player who was, he was with Maynard, he was just, you know, Judy Garland, um, Streisand, he played with everyone. Um, he basically got through this teacher of mine, Ray Gerard, was called for that band. It, and, you know, it paid 15 dollars by the time you were done. And uh, Ray couldn't do the gig he was he was busy with other things, and he said, "Hey, I have a student. Check this kid out." Uh, so 
So Johnny called me, Johnny Bellow, and he said, hey, you know, um, uh, your teacher says you can play, and why don't you come in and, and do a rehearsal? And from there, he basically said, yeah, and they put me on the fourth tenor chair, which is the second tenor part of the band. So he basically introduced me to so many different players, and Frankie Valley's contractor came into a concert one night. His name was Duke Natoli, who was the baritone player, and he went on the road with Frankie. And he pulled me aside and he said, hey, how old are you? And I said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm this was a few years after I joined Johnny's band. He said, I'm 22. And uh, he said to me, um, uh, would you think, would you like to go on the road? So we talked. And um, I said, yeah. And uh, Frankie said that the alto tenor chair, that was the chair I would play. He said, whoever it is has to learn the solo to swear to God. <laughs> You know, basically, uh, I learned the solo. I said, who's playing the solo? It was a fellow named George Young, who's still alive and was a great, uh, is, well, he's 82 years old and he's my good friend to this day. I learned the solo and that was my audition. He wanted that solo note for note um, to be played when the, when Frankie performed Swearing to God. I got the gig and I went on the road, uh, spent a year and a half to two years, and I met the the uh, great keyboard player Mitch Foreman at the time, uh, was living in, in New York also. Mitch is on Coast to Coast on One Cut, um, and I play with him out here in California. Uh, Lee Shapiro was a musical director. Um, Lee and I go back to the sixth grade together. He had a bunch of young guys in the band. He wanted to young it up, so to speak, and it gave us a break and an opportunity to... Um, expand our musical uh, life, so to speak. So that's how that happened. Max Weinberg, you run into him, and the story of how you you chose between going with the Kona band, going with Max, and Steely Dan, you know, life is full of decisions, split decisions that can affect the rest of your life. It sounds like that probably was one of the best musical decisions you've made in your life. Um, I really think so, yeah. <laughs> I would say so, 25 years later. Um, Max, Max Weinberg, when Bruce decided to make a change with the E Street Band and do his solo uh, stint, um, Max reached out to his good friend Joe D'Elia, and uh, Max started a, a, a music label called Music Makers, with Jeff Nissim, I think it was. I can't recall. That may be the wrong name. But anyway, Max partnered up with, with a colleague of his and decided to be the executive producer of Music Masters. And basically, they were taking artists like Stanley Tarantine, for instance, and they were, and Joe would, Joe D'Elia would produce these records and um, they were releasing them. CDs were kind of, Still, still a hot item, you know, and, and there were record stores, and I think there were still a few Sam Goodies out on the East Coast, and Tower Records was all over the place. So that company started doing well, and then Joe, who was a producer, music for public radio stations and PBS specials and HBO specials, he actually hired me and Mark Pender quite a lot uh, to do a lot of his sessions. Mark and I knew each other a couple of years prior to that, uh, we were on the road together doing lots of different things from Southside Johnny to Springsteen to 
uh, we worked with Lucy Arnaz, believe it or not, together, and, and that's where I met La Bamba and Mark. Um, and, and we were in the studio together. So Joe had a coalition of musicians, and, and, he, and, and he said to Max, why don't you do a record? <clears throat> It'll be Killer Joe, Joe D'Elia with Max Weinberg. Well, Max actually said to Joe, why don't you do, why don't we do a record with you? And, and Joe, so they marketed it with Max's name on it, but Joe was a piano player, a honky-tonk type, a New Orleans type piano player. So that band was basically put together with Max playing drums, and we did a fair amount of gigs, and that's how I really met Max Weinberg. So when the Conan situation uh, came about, um, Max basically handpicked my brother Jimmy, uh, we were all involved with Killer Joe, Joe D'Elia's uh, band. He handpicked everyone in the band, um, the, and he knew La Bamba through Bruce. So he put the band together, and basically um, we did an audition, and no one ever thought anything would come of it, but it did. And um, I was looking at an itinerary for, it wasn't Steely Dan, it was Donald Fagan. He had broken away from Walter Becker. And uh, my brother and I were both on that Fagan uh, mini tour and we my brother and I spoke and we just said you know what do we do here do we roll the dice do we do five weeks with Steely Dan and then we don't know what's going to come of that uh, which was a great decision because well Fagan actually um, you know it was a great decision because here we are talking about Conan um, and uh, one door closed we closed it and another one opened so, yeah, it was, I think it was luck, too, because we were really on the fence. But we figured this TV opportunity comes along once in a lifetime. If that, let's take the shot. So that's how it happened. So we're looking at 25 years later. You've had a magnanimous run with Conan, and you're looking at another door opening up in your life. We're talking about this album, but you're also looking into the future. What's, what's on the horizon? What do you want to see happen? Well, now that the TV gig's over, I'm just going to, I want to play jazz and blues gigs till I run out of money. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well um, the things the, the that laid the golden egg for me is that being a full-time musician and being vested in uh, prior to the television show, you know, I was, I was 38 years old when I got the call for, for Conan. So do the math 25 years later. It's really a little yeah. over 25, because believe it or not, I can't believe this. On January 8th, I'm going to be 65 years old. So all of this, my history, even prior to Conan, um, I started with Frankie in my early 20s. Um, I've been contributing uh, to recording and Broadway pit work and show work and, you know, uh, to major tours. Um, that contribute into a pension plan. And, I, and if any young musicians are listening to this, please take note. It's, it's extremely important to try and get yourself vested because, uh, you know, the life of a musician can be hundreds and hundreds of cash gigs and, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, recording sessions that are paper dates, you know, but if you can get into a situation where there's contributions made on your behalf for health and pension, um, you, you could be looking at, at something that will help you out later in life. So I'm vested 
and at 65, which is coming up, you're forced to take your pension and you can continue working. So that's looming for me, and what it does is it gives me an opportunity to pick and choose the gigs I might want to do or might not want to do. I love playing, and I'm not saying I wouldn't. you won't see me in a blues bar or a jazz club where the money isn't the issue, it's about the music. But this really gives me an opportunity um, uh, to really just say, hey, you know, I want the music to make me happy now, and I just want to play music that uh, it's not about uh, the money, you know. Um, it should never be about the money, but it is, because this is what we do, and you need to pay bills, and you need to take care of yourself and your family. So there you go. Er the great Ernie Watts, um, Ernie Watts uh, uh, played on The Tonight Show. Um, so did Chris Chrisley, you know, guys like that that are on so many records. I, I ran into Ernie, who's been retired for quite a few times, and he knew I was doing Conan. This was uh, when I came out here 10 years ago. He lives in L.A. And he was the one who said to me, you know, Jerry, it's great that you've been doing it. He goes, because time flies. And I'm in a situation where I can just do this, meaning he was on a jazz gig. And, you know, embrace that pension and, and, and what you've worked hard for because it will come back at you and uh, let your creative juices flow and just do your thing. So I'm really looking forward to, to that. You know, I'm, I have gigs lined up with Bernie Dressel's big band. Um, uh, I have... I'm going back east this weekend. I work with the Fab Foe, which is Will Lee's group. Um, and I, I have my own jazz quartet, as you know, from coast to coast, quartet slash quintet that I'm lining up gigs and looking at, looking for an agent that I would feel comfortable to possibly start booking me. If anyone's listening, I have no representation. I'm ready to talk. So there you go. That's, I, I hope I've explained it to a uh, haven't over elaborated, but that's where I'm at. No, that's cool. That's totally cool. And the one thing about you and who you are is that you've obviously been in front of a camera for 25 years. You've done a lot of commercial jingles. You've really been in front of people, and your work has been prolific up to this point. So my question is this. Let's get to the essence of who you are. Everyone has a version of you, your family, your friends, your work colleagues, those that have seen you, but you know who you are. So tell me, who do you think you are? I'm just a person who loves people, and um, my true passion was I wanted to play second base for the New York Yankees. So when I knew that wasn't going to happen, I got even more serious with my music. I think I'm just uh, a guy who uh, loves music, loves loves my family, um, Loves baseball, living life. I love food. I eat a little too much. I got to watch that. I think I'm a guy that just is will continue to strive to get things right, not just with music, but with life in general, with people, uh, decisions. Everybody has uh, pluses and negatives, and we try to, you know, there's evil and there's good, and you try to be good, and. Um, you know, the, the, uh, you have to handle situations, uh, as I get older, I'm a little more patient with my decisions, uh, with the route I might take, 
And um, I'm just trying to trying to live the rest of my life in a good, clean way and um, be kind to others and listen and um, continue playing until my teeth fall out, you know? Yeah. Amen, man. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's an excellent question. You know, who I am, uh, it's, it, in the end, it's, it's, it's when you know that uh, you did your best, I think that's all you can ask for, whatever you're doing. If you try your hardest and do your best, I think you'll be fine. Without a doubt. That's the most sensitive karma you can probably walk into realistically. Yeah. Um, without a doubt. Terry, thank you for opening up about your music. Thank you for the music. And, and I just, I know I mentioned it before, but I was a huge steward of watching you guys on Conan, and I was always blown away by the amount of musical talent that was on there. And it was very evident from not only you guys in the band, but from Conan and those that ran the show that music was a huge priority for them. And I appreciated that, not only from an entertainment standpoint. I think Conan's the funniest guy in late night. He will always be one of the funniest guys that's ever been on late night, hands down. But I think the musical, uh, the music that was brought to the world consistently was high, high class all the time. I can't disagree with you. Um... You know, Conan, uh, I can honestly say that, you know, he's a celebrity, but he's my friend. He's everyone's friend, not just the band. Um, he knows everyone's name on the show. It could be it could be the person who sweeps the floors. He has that ability to um, connect with everyone on his staff. I saw that from the get-go with him. I admire that, and I learned from that, that you can be uh, on top of the world, but... Um, He's, he made a decision um, based on uh, uh, letting the band go, which was the most difficult decision of his career. I honestly believe that because he connected with us. And um, uh, to give you an example of how he cared so much about his staff, I'll give you the uh, story about myself. It opened my eyes. I said, wow, he really cares about us, you know. Early on, about two and a half years into the show, you know, I, I needed to sub out for about four or five shows. And I went to the executive producer and said, you know, there's something I really want to do. If it's okay, I could get a sub. I ran it by Max. He said, I need to speak to you guys about it. It's okay with Max. I wanted to go out for, for four days uh, to Chicago to do these gigs with Kaylee Smith, the late, great Kaylee Smith, Louis Prima's ex-wife uh, performer. I loved her music and his and Louis' music. And, you know, I, I had been doing gigs on the weekends and, and at night with her for seven years, and she said, Jerry, I really need you. If you can, if you can do this, it'd be great, and I, I said, let me check with the show, because I'd like to do it, so I did it, and when I came back, Conan called me into his office after a show, and he said, hey, I noticed you were gone. Is everything okay? And I said, yes, it is, and I appreciate the show letting me go. He goes, well, uh, you, were, you went out with Keely Smith. That's great. How was it? And he wanted to know every detail, and he said, Jerry, I'm only asking because I'm I'm really hopeful that you're happy here. Is it that you wanted to? And I've said, Conan, please. He goes, No, I really want to make sure that every, you wouldn't be leaving uh, for four days because you're tired of this. And he was it was so heartfelt. And I realized he said I would never stop anyone from doing something they want to do, but if it's for reasons beyond uh, uh, that, I'd like to know. Because uh, I don't want to. And it was, if you get the gist of what I'm saying, yeah, I shared totally. that with the guys, and we had a few other situations where Mark and Richie went out with Bruce, and I did too. We did the Super Bowl, and 
you know, it wasn't constant, but they didn't want to see us subbing out. Conan likes liked to see his, it was a family that he created. He created a real family situation on the show. And he wished everyone the best, anyone who may have left for other reasons. He always wished everyone the best, but he had concern. And I learned from that as well. Like, wow, he really cares about what everyone's doing and he's involved. I could see that. Just as someone that was a viewer, there was enough segments when things were real heavy that would happen and the way he would react to it, I got that sentiment. And I even got that with segments that he did. And I knew just overall with, with just the way he treated you guys, I could see it, you know, and uh, yeah. it was evident. And, and, and that's the thing that I think that's always been endearing and enduring about him is that he is unbelievably funny, but beneath all of the humor, I can see a human being. And that is reassuring. And I think the one thing that I realized I was heartbroken when he didn't get a Tonight Show gig, but I knew he did it because of his integrity, and I knew that he could have taken the bullet for himself and done it for himself, but I think what I saw that resonated out of that decision was that he did it for you guys and for the staff, and I remember when he went to CBS making it very clear that he loved you guys, and it was very evident, and it was an altruistic decision from what I could see instead of it being from what a lot of people did, from what his predecessor did, which was about them, about the people serving themselves. And he wasn't that kind of cat. And I don't see him being no. that kind of cat. So that's always reassuring when people you admire are real and good and have integrity. It just makes life better. You know, the Tonight Show, we all know the story. I don't need to revamp it. But, you know, they wanted to, why don't you go, why don't we put you on at, at midnight? We'll have Jay do uh, half an hour and then you'll come on at midnight. Uh, I guess midnight to one or midnight to 12.30, but, you know, they thought the Tonight Show, Conan, I, I believe, this is my own theory here, that if he had done that, I think they eventually just would have moved Jay in completely. And, um, you know, Conan, he made it clear to, to uh, he had a meeting with all of us, and, and he said, look, I didn't sign up for a 12 o'clock Tonight Show. Um, I... I <laughs> This is a decision I'm making. He wasn't uh, let go. He was offered a different uh, scenario, and, and he I think he made the right decision, you know? Yeah. He totally did. I mean, we landed on our feet. He took care of so many people when he decided to leave the Tonight Show, and, and he had the meeting saying, look, I'm going to be back, and you all can go out and find other gigs, but I want to hire each and every one of you for my new show when I land somewhere. And you know what? He did just that. Yeah. And he took he took the band on a tour. And what a great time we had. You know, that probably was the best tour I ever... I mean, look, I was out on the road with so many people, and I got to say, that one I didn't want to end, although I knew it would end because it was catalytic to he, him connecting with TBS. And there were a lot of offers from other stations, and he he partnered up with TBS, and I think he made a great decision. Um, you know, television has changed. Network's not what it used to be. You know, cable isn't even what it used to be now. Um, you know, there's people are watching when they want on the Internet in the palm of their hand on their iPad or their, or their iPhone or, or smartphone. You can get right to it, you know, and just say, oh, well, I missed Conan last night. Let me go to the... Team, Team Coco site and watch that show. Yeah. You know, in January, they're putting up every single show on 
on the uh, uh, Conan website from the very first show that we did on the Tonight Show all the way through our last show here. Wow. They're archiving every single show. Um, so, hey, you, you know, just this is the landscape that we're dealing with. And, you know, there are reasons uh, that there's always been change in entertainment. And the entertainment business, when uh, when TV was evolved, people who were radio entertainers were like, that's going to kill radio. But it didn't kill radio. Radio's still there. Yeah. You know, there's different formats of it, you know? Yeah. Um, I scratch my head and say, gee, why am I even putting out CDs anymore? There's no more record stores. You know, it's CD Baby and Amazon and, and everyone's streaming and, uh, you know, only people who want to hold something in their hand will go out and get vinyl or, or a CD now. You know, automobiles are being made without CD players. But I'm realizing that, okay, this changes, this is what's happening and you either go with it or you just say, that's it, I'm done. And I don't want to be done, so I have to get to the program and learn about what the young people are basically into now. And um, yeah. it, in the end, it'll be good. You know, it has to be, because music's not going to go away. Movies and TV are not going to go away. It's just how we're going to be watching them or listening that's changing. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, hey, man, thank you again for taking your time out today. I, I really appreciate it. Good luck with the next venture in your life. And hopefully at some point, man... You can jam with Love Man here in KC, and I'll catch you live. Yeah, yeah, he wants to do that with me, and we're going to do it because he wants to take me to Gates. Is it really that good? Oh, man, get out of town. You've got to have it. <laughs> I've had it with Mark. He orders it up sometimes, you know, and uh, uh, there's a couple others out in Kansas City, but it's the best barbecue I've ever had, you know, as far as as barbecue goes. I'm, I'm, I love it. But um, And it's a great city and it's a great music town and there's the uh, Negro League Hall of Fame. I'm a baseball freak, so I'd right like on. to see that. And and the uh, the Jazz Museum is right next to it, isn't it? Yep, yep, it's right there, one shot. Yeah, so right. I think yeah. it'll be a lot for me to really enjoy. I've been to Kansas right. City in and out on the road at times. That's about it. I appreciate you reaching out to me and having me as part of your, of your program. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Los Angeles, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jerry for his music, his class, and his time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.